0: so glad you joined us today on Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour and I'm your host. And today we are starting a new series on discipleship. You know, there are a lot of church programs and lots of ways to engage in ministry, to volunteer, to dig in and mature in your own walk, but not many of them label what they're doing discipleship. And dad, something that I've heard from you over and over and over throughout the years is your intention to be discipling other men, to be discipling through the marriage mentor group you do. You and mom are both extremely intentional about discipleship. Talk to me about that.
1: It probably began in college. Uh, I'd come to Christ earlier, but never really grew. I mean, I read my Bible and went to church, but it was in college yeah. I met some men in the church I attended at Grace Bible Church in Nacogdoches, Texas, right across the campus at Stephen F. Austin. And uh, one was a businessman and one was an oral surgeon. Wow. And just so happened to meet these guys and they both would buy me lunch. You know what college kid doesn't like a free Absolutely. lunch? And we would talk. Uh, one of them gave me Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Hmm. And we started reading this book and talking about it. I looked forward to that all week long to get with these guys. One was a banker, one was a the surgeon, and then a, a man I worked for was a painter, a painting contractor. And they all in their own way started to impress Their fingerprints on me. And I didn't know I was being discipled, Mm -hmm. but that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I had the Bible study with men in college and things like that. And I taught at a church college study. But um, by the time I got to seminary, you get, you know, you get focused into your grad school and early marriage and whatnot. Um, Cindy and I were always interested in being in groups. Mm -hmm. And part of it was just community. We didn't use that language, but that's what it was. Yeah. And so early on in ministry, I realized very quickly something Howard Hendricks often said you impress people from a distance, but you impact people up close. So, understanding you can preach great sermons, you can, you know, dazzle people with all kinds of ability, but it's the one on one over a meal, over a coffee, in your home, late at night, the conversations take place where discipleship begins. Yeah. So, I learned early on in ministry that you can, you know, you do all the, important things i mean sermons aren't unimportant sure <laughs> but it's it's the big funnel i like to think that the big funnel opening is coming to a church experience and then as people neck down that funnel we want to help them grow mm-hmm. and so your mom and i've done all kinds of small groups bible studies filling in the blank programs um, but i would submit most churches do not do a great job of making disciples mm-hmm. bsf precept Crew. IV you name them they're great organizations they do a good skill set in their area but are they reproducing reproducers Mm. and to me that's the the definition of a disciple is someone who's going to follow Christ mature in the faith they can study the Bible on their own They're convicted by God's Spirit. They're working with other people in community, and they continue to do that all their life. That's a discipler. Mm.
0: Do you remember the first time that you started discipling someone else?
1: I I was saying college, I fumbled around with it. Mm -hmm. But I I was probably more the disciple e, the disciple, than the discipler. By seminary, uh, one of our dear friends, Robert White uh, roped me in <laughs> to working with working with high school students at the church we attended. I was terrified of high school students.
0: Michael Easley, youth pastor. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
1: Dear Lord, forgive me. But um, what I did was I got, I think it was a little Navigator book or something, and I just chased four high school young men. And they came over to our little duplex, mm-hmm. and we filled in the blanks. We memorized verses together. And that was important, but it was going quail hunting with them, yeah. playing racquetball with them, yeah. after school getting a, a McDonald's with them. That was where I understood, okay, this this teaching students, I'm not a upfront youth group guy, but I can relate to a, a, another person mm-hmm. asking questions. Uh, one young man, uh, he had an old beat up car and I was a bit of a mechanic so I'd help him on his car and we talked about life and faith and girls and and so I, I think by by those years in, in grad school I was understanding this is what ministry is even mm-hmm. if it's not just students it could be older younger whatever we use the expression life on life with this which is, is kind of cliche but that to me is decided. and then are you taking the initiative to say are you going spiritually? Where are you struggling in your Christian life mm-hmm. you know and with men i I straight up ask them, are you struggling with pornography H- how's your how's your marriage? what are you doing with your money And what I find Hannah remarkable is that no one's ever put off by my questions hmm. they
0: answer yeah
1: they say we're not doing too good in our marriage or' yeah. I'm, I'm really struggling with pornography or, or our money's upside down yeah. and so then you're you're getting into the meat of their life what does Christ think about this? And how can I help you? I'm not here to judge you or be mad at you. How can I help you? So I think it's a lot easier than we...
0: Do you think that's because you're a pastor? Do you think that they will be honest with you and respond and they feel safe and like you're a confidential person?
1: In some ways, maybe. I I do think, and as one of our upcoming interviews, I do think it's more of a hindrance sometimes because you're the holy person. (laughs) You're you're the pastor. You're the priest. You're the minister, the reverend. Um, but I think the relational capital is what gets there. Yeah. If, if they know I'm not, you know, when I was your age (laughs) and let me tell you what you need to do, but more of asking questions and then there is the time to give advice. Sure. But, um, for example, I had a a young man not long ago who was in our mentor group, probably four years ago. He uh, reached out. We hadn't seen each other. We had lunch. He came with presenting problem A. And by the end of the lunch, I was, you know, confronting him in a kind way, asking him questions. And as we left, he said, you know, I came to talk to you about X and you helped me in these other more important areas. Wow. And so I think we underestimate the influence of just being kind and loving and encouraging mm-hmm. to people because we all have the same temptations. We all right. have the same struggles. We right. all have the fights with our mar- in our marriage and trouble with our money and mm-hmm. temptations at work and yada, yada, yada. It's just asking that question. But I think it's the manner and the relational capital more than the position Mm. of being a pastor or Mm -hmm. someone older. Mm
0: -hmm. And probably most of those folks, no one's even asking them those questions. Precisely. Yeah.
1: Precisely. And especially without judgment because they already know internally they're guilty or they're ashamed or they're upside down or they're in debt up to their eyeballs and they don't know what to do Mm -hmm. and they're afraid. Mm -hmm. And then when you say, you know, when Cindy and I were about your guys' ages, we had trouble with money too. Yeah. Some things we learned. Yeah. And you share those with them. And and that way you're not saying when I was your age, right. but it's more of I've been there too. Yeah. And we had the same issues. And even at thirty seven years of marriage, we still have to work at marriage. Mm-hmm. We still can get mad at each other and not speak. And uh I think that in a strange way is that's reassuring to a person who might be married five years. Right. Oh, you know, wow, this is you know, And then I think where the mentoring comes in, a little different to discipleship, is to look at that guy and say, you're the leader. Yeah. Leadership today is not what it was 20 years ago. Leadership today is initiative. Mm-hmm. Do you keep pursuing your wife when she hurt your feeling? Mm-hmm. Do you pursue that person at work when they've rejected you for mm-hmm. whatever reason? Are you willing to pray for someone who's hurt you and stabbed you in the back? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think you can nudge them in a disciple way that another person can't.
0: Well, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking to different folks who really put meat on what it looks like to disciple, the application process. And man, some of those interviews for me were really convicting. But right now, we're going to listen to some thoughts that you have on Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20.
1: Why is it when we talk about the great commission, it seems to be the great omission? When Jesus Christ said, as recorded in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, depending on what church background you may have had or the church you're currently attending, uh, you may have heard this passage taught from a variety of Of different angles. Uh, The most important thing to note about these verses is the word go is not the imperative force. In fact, the verse could be read, Make disciples of all nations as you go. So the implicit instruction Jesus is telling the disciples is not to go, that's understood, but it's rather to make disciples. For the next several podcasts, we're going to be chatting with folks about what it means to be a disciple, to make disciples, and I would submit perhaps of all the activity that we're involved in as Christians, we need to run it through a a sieve, we need to sort through it and ask and answer the question, are we making disciples? You know, as a pastor of a church for many years, it's very easy to tell people to get involved in this program or that program, men's ministries, women's ministries, grounds care, uh, serving other people, helping with meals, missions work, all of which is good and important. But let's ask the hard question. Let's peel the layer back. Are we making disciples in this activity? Are we doing what Jesus said? Is this great commission really great or something we omit? A few years ago, I was speaking at a pastor's conference with my friend Tommy Nelson and Tommy and I were both scheduled to teach in evening sessions. I sat through his session, and basically he stole my entire message, (laughs) unwittingly, obviously. He did a better job of what I had intended to do the next night, and we had coffee late that evening. I said, Tommy, you stole my message. You did a better job of it. I don't know what I'm going to say tomorrow night. But our conversation moved to the fact that we have been building churches expecting someone else to make disciples. When Jesus' command was, he would build his church and we are to make disciples. So no matter where you are in your continuum of faith and growth, let me ask you a question. Are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? Now the word disciple is, is a loaded term in some respects. We overwork these things, but basically it means a student or a pupil uh, who has a master. It's used both in and outside the Bible to someone who's following a teacher. So to make a disciple of Jesus Christ is simply to help someone follow Christ, to equip them in such a way that they understand who He is, uh, what He's done for them, how they are to live their life as a follower, as an ongoing student of Christ, and then are they themselves helping others come to know Christ and to reproduce them into disciples. You know, we've differentiated in most churches and ministries as evangelism being a gift and disciple-making being sort of an activity or a program. I would like to stretch your thinking and merge those two concepts that evangelism and discipleship can really be viewed as one action. In other words, we're not simply to evangelize, we are to make disciples. Making disciples is helping a person come to know Christ and to become a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. So. You can put that in one sentence, as Jesus did, make disciples. So that begins with relationships. It begins with continuity. It begins with some type of outreach to other people to get to know them and to share the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel, and to help them become uh, self-feeding, to be equipped to understand the work of service for ministry. Well, as we think through discipleship in the New Testament as it unfolds, this was Christ's last command, and let's just say we should take it as a first concern. He explains it, first of all, to all nations. The word there is ethnos, where we get the English word ethnicity or ethnic groups. So we're to help people come to know Christ and grow and mature regardless of their ethnic origin. And we tend to look at things from our own viewpoint for white, African-American, Asian, we look at the world that way. And his disciples were instructed to reach beyond their own network, to reach beyond their own ethnicity to other ethnic groups. Baptizing, of course, is another loaded term, but it simply means to be identified. We're baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, now that you've come to Christ, you're a follower of Christ, let's cement that and you're being baptized to show yourself aligned, identified as a follower of Christ. For you theologians out there, it's important to notice the Trinitarian Godhead in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, of course, goes back to Jesus' own baptism. When he's identified at John's baptism, where the Spirit descends like a dove on him, the Father's voice comes out of heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So Christ was identified as the God-man, the Son of God. So in keeping with that identification, Jesus says make disciples of all ethnic groups, and then you identify them as followers of this Trinitarian Godhead. You identify them as followers of Jesus Christ. I'm stepping out from my background, from my origins, and I'm saying, no, I am no longer aligned with that. I'm aligned with Christ. So make disciples by identifying them and then teaching them to observe all that he commanded. So this goes back to God's word. Are we equipping them with what God told us? If we study the life of Christ and just look at what Jesus did, the claims he made about himself, the way he related to people, we have an inexhaustible supply of things to teach other people, depending on where they are in their spiritual growth, where we are in our spiritual growth. But I think we miss quickly what he said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. These weren't negotiable. These weren't things we could maybe do and maybe not do. He says, there are certain things I taught you, I commanded you, and I want you to teach those to other people. And then he assures them and says, look, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, by the time Paul comes on the scene, Saul, of course, has this dramatic conversion where he's confronted, he's struck blind, the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Three days later, Ananias shows up, he speaks to Saul, the scales fall off his eyes, Paul becomes a follower of Christ, and the rest of the book of Acts from chapter 8 on really records how the gospel then is taken out of Jerusalem, Judea, and to the remotest part of the world through primarily the work of Paul the Apostle. Paul then goes to all these different cities where he takes the gospel beyond Israel. And by the time we get to what we call the pastorals, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, to the Thessalonians, these letters are instructive to, let's say, how to do church. So now the gospel is expanding. People are embracing Christ. They're believing in him. They're having these transformational experiences with an encounter with Christ. We've got to help them grow. So these pastoral letters then, teaching Timothy, teaching Titus, the churches at Thessalonica, this is how you do church. And by the time Paul transfers this, he talks about equipping faithful people. And we see that theme through many of Paul's writings. Teach, prescribe and teach these things, Timothy. Instruct to other men, Timothy. Instruct to other people. So this transference of making disciples continues throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, we might distill the message of the Great Commission is, are you making disciples who then make disciples? Reproduction through multiplication have far greater numbers and far greater impact than addition or subtraction. When we're multiplying people who will share the gospel, who will make disciples of all ethnos, we're doing what Jesus told us to do. Now, for those of you who've been part of In Context and listening to broadcast, most of you, I would suggest, are probably pretty well equipped in the Word. You know the Bible pretty well. Maybe you don't know all the ins and outs of every nuance of theology. For goodness sake, no one does. Maybe you and I feel inadequate to talk to certain people depending on their background and where they came from and whether they were churched or non-church or in some different group that we don't know all the ins and outs of. If I could just erase all that concern and set it aside and ask you to look at the people in your sphere of influence the people you trade with your vendors your customers your patients your students the neighbors that you interact with on a regular basis people you see in the traffic pattern of your life if you had eyes to see those men and women as potential disciples and you began praying and asking God let me reach these folks And just befriend them over a cup of coffee, over a project in the neighborhood, working in each other's yards, maybe taking care of your kids for a Mother's Day Out program where you're trading a neighbor, you're watching her kids, and she watches your kids, and you have a cup of coffee in between. Look for natural lanes of conversation, natural patterns of relationships, and say, who are these people, Lord, that I might just encourage and nudge them along? And then you might choose a book or you might tell your story or you might ask them about their religious background just to get the conversation going. You know, overcoming that obstacle of initiative and fear is probably the largest concern most of us have. We're not good perhaps at breaking the ice. We're not good or we fear a person's response. Listen, taking initiative to ask somebody a question about their spiritual life may seem insurmountable to you emotionally, but why don't you pray and try it? What could happen? What's the worst thing that could happen is maybe that person's not interested, but more than likely you'll still keep a friendship. So if Jesus' greatest commission to us, his great command was to make disciples of all people groups, helping them be identified as followers of Christ, and then teaching them what he taught us, that he'd be with us And then we look at the unfolding of the Gospels into the pastoral epistles through Paul, how this plays out. Christ came to save men and women's souls. He was born to die that you and I might live. And so the message of the Gospel doesn't have to be a four-point evangelistic uh, track or pamphlet we give to a neighbor or friend and we're worried about how we do it. A natural conduit of a relationship with people around us to help them come to know who this Christ is through your story, through your experience, through what you know about God. And then getting their nose in the book. I often say there's three things that help us change. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. I don't think you can do it without those three things. You need time in His Word, you need the control of His Spirit, and you need people around you and with you to live out this Christian life. It's a natural flow of discipleship. You and I spend time in the Word every day, You and I are asking the Holy Spirit to control us in our marriages, our work, our parenting, our relationship with people, keeping us from sin, so forth and so on. Now, are we looking for that community where we can help others grow in the person and work of Jesus Christ? If Christ's greatest command was to you and me to make disciples, it's a good watermark. It's a good question. It's it's a good benchmark to ask, am I making disciples for Christ? It's not about you. It's not about me, it's what he commanded and instructed us to do. And he's wired you for that. You know you can reach people that I can never reach. You can touch people that professional men and women in Christian service have an enormous obstacle to communicate with. But in the fabric of your life, in the relationships already in front of you, I am sure, I am certain there are relationships there where you can share the love of Christ, you can help equip these men and women to grow, not just punch a clock, not just go to church, not just be in a program, but can grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, and they too make disciples. Here's the cool thing. God has not given us the responsibility of success. God's not told us to be successful in discipleship. God has asked us to be faithful. The results are in the hands of the caller, not in the hands of the called. This is Michael Easley in Context.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.